This is the word of God from Daniel chapter 5, verse 31 through chapter 6, verse 10. The plot against Daniel. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators in the, of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had, be, had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The story of Daniel 6 is the story of private worship and public worship colliding. Let's play a short game this morning, shall we? I'm going to give you the name of an individual, and you tell me what event or circumstance immediately comes to mind. Okay? David. It's Goliath. You got it. You're getting it. Good, good. Okay, let's keep going. Napoleon. Okay. I knew it. I knew we'd have dynamite given as an answer. Depending on the era you were born in, that's an acceptable answer. I was thinking Waterloo. I heard Bonaparte there as well. It's pretty good. How about Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad, leading escaped slaves to freedom from southern slave states like Tennessee, Daniel, and the lion's den. Sometimes an individual gets so closely connected to an event that he or she becomes in the popular imagination not much more than the event itself. Today's text brings us to one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and certainly the most familiar story of the book of Daniel itself. And the reality is we often shrink Daniel down to the events of this story. But Daniel is more than this story, just like Napoleon was more than Waterloo or dynamite, more than Harriet Tubman was merely Moses of the Underground Railroad, 
You see, a lifetime of formation led up to each of these events, a lifetime of decisions that shaped each individual into the one we see well, facing defeat at Waterloo, or the one exhibiting courage and resolve and leadership on the Underground Railroad, or the one facing down Goliath, or the one sitting in a lion's den. But let's make it more personal. We often begin to interpret our own individual stories in light of these sort of epic stories. I did this frequently as a child, and I'm guessing you did as well in your own way. I was Robin Hood, leading a band of daring escapades against the tyrants Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham in my imaginative play while King Richard was absent. Well, if I was playing with my brother, he was Robin Hood and I was Little John, but that's getting too far into the details. Maybe for you, you were the first astronaut on Mars, or the best teacher in the world, or the first female president. As children, we often are formed to think in terms of heroic and epic deeds worth celebrating and retelling. And frankly, as adults, we often find ourselves falling into the same ways of thinking. When will my life begin? What event will take place that will define my existence? What will my adventure be? When will it be my turn to live a meaningful, significant life? Or have I missed that moment? Has it already passed? In this, we're kind of like Sam Gamgee. He has multiple rounds of profound conversation with Frodo in the book, The Lord of the Rings, as they engage on their dangerous journey, wondering if they are actually themselves in a tale similar to the ones that they, as little hobbits, had been told about their whole lives. And the question in their mind, as they travel, will we be remembered and sung about? In the same way. But what's so dangerous about always looking ahead in this way is we are failing to recognize that we are being formed right now. Our life isn't lived in the past or the future, it's being lived in the present. In moments like this on October, on an October morning in 2023, formation is happening. Formation that's shaping us into a kind of person. And that formation is happening as you interact with your family, with your community. As you binge watch a TV show. As you read the news or scroll on TikTok. As you worship on a Sunday morning, formation is happening. And if we're being honest, many of us long for the heroic. But we forget that heroic actions are forged long before in the furnace of the everyday stuff of life. And as a church, we are unapologetically in the business of spiritual formation. 
We call it discipleship. We're going to look at only one half of Daniel 6 today, and we'll finish it next week. This is the only one of the narratives in Daniel that we're going to cut in half, and it's purposeful. We need to slow down to see what formed Daniel into the sort of man that we know him to be simply because we know the story. But I want you to, I want to ask you to suspend everything you believe you think you know about Daniel and the lion's den for just a few moments. And as we investigate this story, we'll see that it has a word to speak first about authentic spirituality specifically, and second, it has a word to speak about our public spirituality under pressure. So first, it has a word to speak about our private spiritual formation or authentic spirituality. Priscilla already read the text for us. I wonder what stood out to you. Undoubtedly, the intentional civil uh, disobedience was pretty glaring, wasn't it? But there are six words that take us deeper into who Daniel is. And they're easily, easily overlooked. They're almost hidden within the heroic. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, look down at verse 10. This is what we read. The edict has already been given... And when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God. Does the verse end there? No. He gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. The time for intentional spiritual formation is before a crisis, not once it's begun. And make no mistake, this was a crisis. These jealous co-workers of Daniel found exactly what they wanted to in order to nail him to the wall. So they convinced the king to revoke religious liberty for 30 days. And to require all prayer to be directed not towards a God, but towards a man, towards Darius himself, also known as King Cyrus, on pain of death, and a painful death at that, death by, well, we could say, lioning squad. And what does Daniel do? What he's done every day up to that point. He goes to the second floor, and he prays towards Jerusalem. Now remember, Daniel and his friends are exiles in a strange land. They've been removed from Judah, the promised land, Jerusalem, decades earlier. We know that from chapter 1, verse 1. Now the direction that Daniel prayed is important. When wise King Solomon had built and consecrated the temple about 400 years before this text, this is what he prayed. Solomon says, when your people, God, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, 
and you are angry with them and hand them over to the enemy and their captors deport them to a distant or nearby country. That exactly describes Daniel and his friends, doesn't it? And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and they repent and they petition you in their captor's land saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. And when they return to you with all their mind, with all their heart, in the land of their captivity, where they were taken captive, and when they pray in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors, and the city you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petitions in heaven, your dwelling place, and uphold their cause. May you forgive their, your people who sinned against you. So Daniel, knowing this prayer and this promise, assumes that God is a restoring kind of God who listens to heartfelt prayer. No external pressure is going to cut him off from this time of fellowship that he cherishes with the God of his fathers. Friends, what matters most in this life is not your stock portfolio. It is not your financial security, nor your ac academic degrees, nor your family of origin, or your present circumstances. What matters most is your heart orientation towards God. What matters most is your worship. Worship is a main theme of Daniel. And citizens of the eternal kingdom are not swayed by cultural idols and pressure. But they press on to worship God and God alone, primarily through prayer and obedience to God. Now, think about Daniel. There is no church with which he can gather in Babylon. There's no completed scripture that Daniel can pull off of his shelf and sit down or no app that he can pull up on his smartphone to scroll through the text of the Bible. I hope what you're hearing is that Daniel has far less outwardly than you and I have to secure us to faithful worship of God. But, for many of you in this room and for Daniel, we share this in common. He has experienced the grace of God to such a degree that its keeping power is more powerful than the commanding power of any human authority. You see, worship of God has always been subversive. But that subversion begins internally. It begins in our hearts. The subversive power of worship of the true God casts down the idolatry of our hearts. Idolatry is the essence of sin. Listen to how Tim Keller describes it. Tim is a well-known pastor and author in New York City who passed away just this year. Here's what he would say. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It's much more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. 
Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Sin is building your identity, your self-worth and happiness on anything other than God. Sin looks like looking to your career or your performance or your work ethic to save you, to give you everything you ought to be looking for in God. So Tim Keller continues, this idolatry leads to drivenness, addictions, severe anxiety, obsessiveness, envy of others, resentment. And friends, when sin gives birth to this sort of idolatry in our hearts, there's only one thing that can cure us. And that's worship of the one true God. Seeing God for who he is, for who the scriptures proclaim him to be, the gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in compassion and steadfast love, forgiving sin and iniquity and trespasses and law-breaking but who cannot allow the guilty to go unpunished. You know, it's popular today to talk about being spiritual, being a spiritual person, isn't it? But if that spirituality is divorced from or antagonistic to the one who is himself spirit, God, God as he reveals himself, then it's not a genuine spirituality. Now, it's a replacement. It's an artificial form. And it may at times seem to produce the same kind of results even. Kind of like, well, how astroturf may in some way function like real turf. But in the final accounting, it's just plastic. It's not life-giving. It's incapable of producing life or giving life away. It's just an imitation. Daniel's practices of spiritual formation prepared him to face the crisis we find here. So, what is the word that this text speaks about our private spiritual formation? Well, in a sentence, we could word it this way. Authentic spirituality involves private worship of the one true God. Authentic spirituality involves private worship of the one true God. Daniel was able to non-anxiously make a difficult decision in the face of incredible pressure Because he had spent his life in spiritual formation before God. His story did not begin in Daniel 6. Daniel refused to orient his life and heart around the cultural idols that his peers worshipped. Idols of power and influence. The same idols we see empowering his fellow co-workers. And friends, when the crisis of worship comes to our doorstep or our cubicle, it will matter if we have spent our lives cultivating a heart that leans towards greed or materialism, or a heart that 
leans towards secularism or nationalism or racism or power. Because when push comes to shove, our real God becomes evident. When it seems like our world is falling apart, where we turn for security demonstrates whom or what we worship. Friends, can I be incredibly direct with you? January 6th, I think I have your all's attention. January 6th was many things. But it was not surprising. If you put all your hope in one man and his promises, you will do whatever is necessary to keep your idol from being toppled. And unfortunately, many people, including Christians, were caught up in that idolatry that turned to chaos. And so men and women sought human means of power to try to restore order to their world that felt like it was collapsing. And so power became an ultimate object of worship that collapsed under its own weight. And friends, that's what happens to an idol. But here's the thing. If your God needs your help to keep from being toppled under pressure, then friends, maybe it's time to find a different God. Perhaps you have always considered yourself a Christian or a good person at the very least. You do what you believe to be good things. You try to keep the golden rule. You, you want to live life without regret. Maybe you consider yourself spiritual or religious. And all of these things are commendable to some degree. But it was the wisdom of Solomon that reminds us to guard our hearts with all vigilance. He doesn't say to guard our actions with all vigilance or to guard our words with all vigilance or to guard our educational inputs with all vigilance. He says to guard your heart, your inner self and its inclinations with all vigilance. Why? Because out of it flow the sources of life. So friend, if your spirituality doesn't bend its way towards God himself, if your heart orientation is not postured with its windows towards him, then while your spirituality may be superficially beneficial, it will never be deeply satisfying to you or to others. No amount of church going or money giving or moral keeping will gain you entrance to the kingdom of God. And one of my fears as a pastor is encouraging folks frequently to gather each Sunday morning as a church family, which I believe is crucial to the health 
of every single Christian. But my fear is, is that one will then think that in this act alone, his or her spirituality is secured. Worship is complete. Obligations have been met. But friends, this text addresses us with clarity to say genuine spirituality involves private worship of the one true God. And if our hearts are not leaning towards God privately, then all of this is a show, a scam, a sham. And we're wasting our time. So friend, let me ask you, what does your private worship of God look like? Is it real? Is it so real that you frequently can feel its subversive attacks on the idols of your heart? Convicting you and bringing you in repentance and faith back to God? Is your private worship of the one true God in an ongoing state of being tended and cared for and watered and fed and addressed? Or is your relationship to God, well, a bit like AstroTurf? Just lay it down and forget it. Let me ask it another way. If a law was passed tomorrow against personal prayer, personal prayer or private worship, would it even make a difference in your life? Would you even have a decision to make? The text has a word to speak about our private spiritual formation, mainly this. Genuine spirituality involves private worship of the one true God. Second, This text has a word to say about our public spirituality under pressure. In the first half, we built up to the conclusion that genuine spirituality involves private worship of the one true God. Here in this part, I want to lay my cards on the table up front. The words this text has to speak about our public spirituality under pressure is this. Authentic spirituality is never merely private. If spirituality is only private, then it's not authentic. If it is authentic, it is private, but never merely private. Now, At this point, some of you may be mentally objecting, objecting. hang on Isaiah, Jesus tells his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to pray and to fast and to give in secret, a hidden private spirituality. And you're right, he does. Why? Jesus says because the Father sees in secret and rewards openly. Jesus' point is actually similar to, To our point, if our spirituality, Jesus is saying, is only ever public, public, then it's also not genuine. But remember, the cultural pressure in Jesus' day was the opposite than that in Daniel's day. It was the culturally acceptable thing to practice your spirituality in the public square. In fact, that's what the Pharisees did. 
the religious leaders made an outward and surface level spirituality the whole shebang. That's all that matters. But here we see a double-edged sword. Genuine spirituality is never merely public. And genuine spirituality is never merely private. Authentic spirituality, or to put it another way, a life that is genuinely oriented towards worship of the one true God will be cultivated in secret and expressed in public. I hope you didn't miss this in the text. Daniel could have taken one simple action that would have eliminated the danger. Let me read verse 10 again, and you tell me what that action could, could have been. Okay? When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. So far, so good. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, knees prayed, and gave thanks to his God just as he has done before. Friends, what could Daniel have done to eliminate the danger? Shut the windows. He could have prayed in private. No one needed to know that he was breaking the law. And he would have saved his skin. But he didn't. Why? Well, because authentic spirituality, while being cultivated in secret, must be expressed in public. Daniel had to take a public stand, and it wasn't a first-time-for-him kind of stand. He was simply doing what he had always done in the way he had always done it. Christians throughout church history have embraced this reality, that authentic spirituality must be expressed in public. Let me give you three examples. First, in the early church, the early church was known for taking in babies that had been exposed to the elements, rescuing them from infanticide. Public, subversive spirituality. Example number two, while it's shamefully true that some Christians argued for slavery by misusing the Bible and even owned slaves... It is also true that many Christians work tirelessly to abolish the slave trade in the UK and America. Men and women like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Lloyd Garrison, John Brown, Frederick Douglass in the U.S. Oilato Equiano, William Wilberforce, and Thomas Clarkson in the U.K. all claim to be followers of Jesus and from that place campaigned for the abolition of slavery. Public, subversive spirituality. Example number three. In Germany, leading up to and during World War II, the church broadly was expected to support and defend Hitler and Nazism, swearing oaths of allegiance to Hitler. And a group of those churches refused to do so, maintained their independence from Nazi influence, and became known as the Confessing Church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a clergyman in the Confessing Church. And his public resistance soon turned so subversive 
that he joined a German intelligence agency so that he could work from the inside to protect Jewish men and women targeted for annihilation. Eventually, he was captured and executed for his public, subversive, countercultural spirituality. But let's move now into our modern day. How does this connect, this text connect to us? Here are three thoughts for application. First, the text reminds us to prioritize our private spiritual formation. Michael Jackson, in his song, Man in the Mirror, saying, if you want to make a world a be- the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Jackson's philosophy in this song taps on a very Christian reality. Christian, the best you can offer this world is your transformed and transforming presence indwelt by the Spirit of God. If you want to make this world a better place, consider your spiritual formation a non-negotiable. But that takes intentionality. You hear us talk about spiritual disciplines frequently. Practices to cultivate genuine spirituality and worship of the one true God through the person of Jesus Christ. You'll hear us talk about silence and solitude and fasting and prayer and Bible reading. These practices push against the powers that are shaping our hearts. Fasting presses against the always indulging, always feasting, always living to satiate desire mentality of our culture which is forming us and silence and solitude are means by which we follow jesus away from the crowds away from the accolades away from the duties in order to cultivate a hidden life with god but engaging in these acts will in some ways be public manifestations of our true worship of the true and living god For it will diminish our proximity to powerful people in culture-bending places. Friends, if you pursue the spiritual disciplines, you will experience cultural diminishment. But practices like these enable us to push against our hearts bent towards idolatry. In a culture that assumes we will always be surrounded by screens, by images, by ads, by noise, by distractions, all of which, by the way, are spiritually forming us, turning our hearts and desires away from Jesus. So friends, we must prioritize our spiritual formation before the crisis ever comes. And start small. I'm not suggesting that you need to carve out three hours of your day. But friends, we each can take ten minutes to stop and pray through our Lord's Prayer. Personalizing it. Fleshing it out with requests for the day. Asking God for His kingdom to come. On earth and in our hearts. And the fruit of our habits of spiritual formation become evident when we are under cultural pressure. Application number two. 
intend to go public with your spirituality as often as possible. Some of us are coming from religious backgrounds where public spirituality was expressed only by announcing what we were against. And that at times is very necessary in any culture. But it is equally important that any culture hear what we are for, not merely what we are against. So in words which Pastor Nick has written, we should individually and corporately labor for righteousness, for mercy, for justice, particularly for the helpless and the oppressed, upholding the worth of all human life as unique image bearers of God, including those of different ethnicities, preborn babies, infants, the aged, the physically challenged, or the neurodivergent, and to pursue unity and embrace ethnic diversity as part of God's design for humanity and to practice racial reconciliation as one of his redemptive purposes in Christ. Now, friends, public spirituality may look like more than this, but it ought not look less than this. In ways like these and more, let's continue to go public with our spirituality, our genuine spirituality. For a final application, let me go back to Jackson's song, Man in the Mirror. Unfortunately, Mr. Jackson indicates that the capacity for change resides within whom? The man in the mirror. The self. But friends, this couldn't be further from the truth. So, let me draw a connection between Daniel praying towards the temple in Jerusalem and our lives today. What was the temple? The temple was the place where God met man and man met God. It was the location where the high priest would intercede for man and his sinfulness before God and his holiness. The temple was the place where blood sacrifices would be offered to atone for, to cover the sins of God's people and where God's people would then dine in God's presence. So let me ask you, is there such a temple for us today? The answer is yes. The physical temple pointed beyond itself to a future reality that for us has already come. When God became man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus was not merely a good teacher, nor was he merely a prophet. He never claimed to be merely that. He claimed to be so much more. He claimed to be the Son of God himself. Jesus is the greater temple where we meet God, the greater high priest who atones for our sin, the greater sacrifice whose life, death, and resurrection satisfies the wrath of God directed at us against our sin and rebellion and idolatry. And when we trust Christ, our spirituality comes alive by his spirit, moving beyond skim-deep behaviorism to heart-level worship and deep transformation. And those who embrace Christ in repentant faith 
Let's take our cue from Daniel praying towards Jerusalem. And let's orient our entire public and private spirituality around the greater temple, the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice of Jesus. And from that place, united to him, we are enabled to embody a genuinely life-giving spirituality. Cultivated in secret and expressed in public. Let's pray together. Father, it is so easy to read your word knowing what already is going to happen. Father, we so easily read a story like Daniel 6 and rush to get through to the miraculous, to the incredible, to the epic, to the heroic. Father, forgive us for seeking the glory, the exaltation, the incredible, while bypassing the everyday, the suffering, the personal decisions, the self-denial that embraces the cross. Father, we are so grateful for our Lord and Savior, who though he was in the form of God, did not think equality with God something to cling to, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So, Father, would you enable us, your children, and us as Sojourn Community Church to cultivate a rich, vibrant, private spirituality that expresses itself in public as often as you would give us opportunity. Help us to do so not to build a name for ourselves or a platform for self-worship, but to do so out of genuine worship of you, the true and living God. And we ask these things by your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.